Welcome to the 6 Minute Abs podcast. My name is Abby, aka 6 Minute Abs, and I will be your host along this fitness and wellness journey. Join me as I share the ups and downs of my personal wellness ride and shed light on some exciting, adventurous, and at times outrageous health topics. The show does not intend to offer any medical advice. I only aim to provide entertainment and to inform. You should always consult a registered doctor before beginning any treatment or on any topic that concerns your physical and mental health and well-being. Furthermore, you will not achieve a full set of abs in six minutes. Believe me, I've tried. Hey everybody, it's me, Six Minute Abs again, and this week I've got a really, really interesting client. Client? No. (laughs) I've got a really, really interesting interviewee with me. Her name is Ashley and she is a speech therapist. So say hi to everybody, Ash. Hi, guys. Okay, so Ash, could you tell me a little bit about why you got into speech therapy in the first place? Um, I think speech therapy actually found me. Um, it was something that I was, um, you know, how you go for those assessments based on um, how you do in, in like tests during school. Yeah, like aptitude and tests. Ap- that's the word. Okay. So then I, I did this aptitude test and um, it gave me three options to become a scientist, <laughs> a speech therapist or a journalist. So wow. I opted for speech therapy, not actually knowing what it was. Um, and then I didn't get in. It was quite a, it's quite a hefty process to try and actually get accepted into this course, which I didn't realize. Um, but I was able to do an interview with the faculty and then, um, but I, yeah, but I didn't, but I didn't get in based on my results or that interview. And then um, I went and I got accepted into just, you know, your BA, um, just like own choice, just to try get into varsity and choose what you want to do a little bit later. Um, and then on the first day of varsity, um, the faculty actually phoned me and said, listen, you were the first one on the waiting list um, for the speech therapy. Um, degree are you still interested so I walked out of my first um, lecture from whatever I was in I can't remember Um, and then I I enrolled into speech therapy and then yeah I never looked back that's so amazing it's like fate was drawing you to speech therapy pretty much yeah really it was it's a bit of a testimony in itself yeah yeah definitely okay so I know that I can speak for myself in this this next question because when we first started chatting, I had no idea what speech therapy entailed. I thought it was just to do with speech. So a lot of people don't actually realize that speech therapy deals with so many more things than merely speech. So can you tell me briefly, I know briefly is quite difficult, but (laughs) can you tell me briefly about the various things that a speech therapist could help someone with? Yeah, sure. So um, it depends on what your interest is, first of all. So um, some people choose to go um, and specialize with adults, geriatrics, uh, and then some tend to veer towards pediatrics, which is um, my field um, of interest. So um, we deal with traumatic brain injuries. We deal with um, um, your general neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, um, things like that, especially in your geriatric population where you actually have um, age-related cognitive impairments. Um, and then it also goes down to um, strokes as well. So that's also related. And then um, then it goes into um, your dysphagia. So 
we have age-related dysphagia, so just degenerative ability to um, swallow effectively as you used to. So dysphagia is basically um, either poor oral control that leads to increased risk of aspiration or um, decreased, um, decreased ability to uh, clear a bolus, which is food, um, effectively enough um, to, to clear um, into basically into your stomach without it going into your lungs. So um, yeah, so it's, there's a whole there's a whole um, uh, uh, interesting topic on um, on swelling, which I'm I was very very um, into when I was treating geriatrics at one stage, and then you go into your PEDS, which is articulation disorders, uh, phonological disorders, um, so all your speech sound disorders. You've got apraxia motor planning issues. Um, you've also got your special needs like your CP, which suffer from dysphagia, um, your autism, um, your Down syndrome. So anything that is um, relating to or inhibiting um, effective communication, eating and swallowing. So we go really um, into your uh, oral motor control when speaking and when eating. So we do a lot of fussy, fussy eaters um, and then a lot of your um, your CPs are mainly we we look at um, uh, communication devices like augmentative alternative communication, any ways and means to have somebody, a client, a child, even an adult, um, begin to communicate more effectively from what they're um, whatever whatever um, wh however they're struggling with it, and then. Um, so, specifically with what I'm doing, we, um, we do a lot of special needs, so looking at CP, autism, um, your school-based children struggling with articulation, literacy, language is issues, um, auditory processing, uh, dyslexia, um, yeah, <laughs> I need to write this down, but yeah, that's that's pretty much from it's it's from the head down to the neck. We deal with all those issues that could um, honestly be related to that. And then a lot of what we do as well is um, address the delays in speech and language learning that children have as they're growing up due to multiple issues. Maybe um, they weren't hearing effectively because of fluid buildup in the ears. So we do then oral rehab to try and get them um, to catch up basically. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so yes, yeah. as you can hear everybody, it is, it's not just lisps and such that speech therapists deal with. There's a huge plethora of topics. Uh, uh, yeah, so as you mentioned that um, you help kids and adults alike um, deal with, speech problems through something called augmentative communication so what kind of child would need that and um, is it basically a kid who battles to actually speak by themselves yeah so um basically the population that we really get onto this is those that may not ever have the ability to um, communicate verbally so that will be your cerebral palsies due to whatever type of cp they have with a cp there's a range that you um, that they struggle with, and it it does range in um, and level the level of severity. So some of them might never be able to talk, or they might not be very intelligible. Um, so they they are definitely um, 
a population that will be using AAC. Um, and then it also helps actually understand and unwrap what, um, what they're actually understanding, what they want to say, and where their cognitive, um, uh, and where they fall in cognitively, because a lot of them are very, very sharp. And then it's your autism, your autistic. So they have a brain and body disconnect. So a lot of autistics know what they want to say. They know what they want to do with their body, but they don't know how to execute it because what their brain is telling their body to do, the body doesn't function that way. And a lot of the autistics I've dealt with um, that have actually, that I've got them on a, a means of like spelling or typing or using AAC have expressed that they're feeling always frustrated, their body doesn't work. Um, and it, 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 it takes up a lot of energy for them to get what they want to say out, even using the AAC device, because of the constant struggle they're having to try and regulate their body with the incoming stimuli and um, things in the environment that's happening, like light, sounds, tactile sensitivities it's just it's just a shame it's it's a real um it, it's hard to get to know an autistic because every single one is different so different like every approach you use with each and every child is an iep it's individualized um it's tailored to that child so time and energy is spent um yeah and a lot of dedication and then another one would be an apraxic, and it depends about how severe that apraxic is. So an apraxic child isn't um, quite somebody that might struggle with um, attention deficits or things like that. It, literally, they struggle with um, executing and planning speech sounds. So the, the oral motor planning for executing speech sounds um, and co-articulated in words. So if you think about what your tongue is doing, what your jaw is doing, what your lips are doing during each speech sound in a word, it is such a complex motor act. And with these apraxics, they they have um, they also basically know what they want to say, but to trying to and to string that together and then um, basically execute the motor movement is a very big struggle for them. So sometimes we start off. Um, just getting them by with an AAC method, but the, the main aim with an apraxic is to, to speak verbally 100%. They will be able to speak verbally. It just takes a lot of, a lot and lot of effort. And then we also sometimes use AAC for our late talkers um, just to help reduce their um, frustration um, for whatever reason that they're a late talker, maybe because um, of hearing problems, whatever. Uh, we sometimes start them off on an AAC device just to um, quicken their understandings of, of picture word and context associations, and then general language comes quicker. Because a lot of people, um, they have a there's a discrepancy about okay, if we're going to use an AAC um, device, if we, which could be low tech or high tech, low tech being picture exchange, high tech being phones or iPads and things like that, is this going to inhibit my child from talking? Um, and the answer is no, it actually creates, um, it, it actually enhances the chance of the child speaking quicker because of the, because children are visual, they grow up being visual, you know, they make associations to words that we say in a context um, with that object, they, they, they learn those associations and pictures just help that because most, most of the time they understand the function and use 
of things that they see. And if a child couldn't hear, they most definitely would be able to recognize what they're seeing and what the function of that item is. And then once their hearing is, is returned based by means of whatever intervention they had, we place the object there, they're like, ah, I know that. And then we give them a verbalization. They're like, ah, is that the word that pairs with that? Right, got you. So it helps. The associations that, that we create um, by um, using multiple modalities helps. Okay. All right. So um, what would you say, when would a parent know or notice that their child is in need of a speech therapist? So um, there are there are quite a few um, things we could take into consideration. Um, to, let me talk about a, a normal um, neurological child for one. Okay. Okay. So you've got a child that seems like they're developing normally. Um, they're now eighteen months, um, but they're not saying much. Maybe they're saying da da mama de. You know, they're saying yeah. maybe just a few words, um, not a wide repertoire of sounds, then we would generally say the earlier the better your child is not quite using um, speech as he or she should at their age. This just try quicken it now because therapy um, and getting you um, grasping what it is that we do and what we can help you with in your environment will improve um, that child's speech and language sooner rather than later, because if you address it later, that child might um, might be in therapy for longer. Okay, so whatever reason that child is a late talker, for whatever reason, I don't know, wasn't stimulated as they should be, overuse of screen, screen time, didn't develop pragmatics properly, um, you, it, it could be anything. Um, slight fluid in the ears, so wasn't quite hearing what mom or dad was saying properly. So we, we look at that early and it's a lot easier to address speech goals with an 18 month old than it is with a three year old. Because if you think about the speech and language demands of an 18 month old, it should be like mama come, dada there, birdie hi, you know, these two word sound yeah. constructs that need to start to develop, not just a few sounds or not just one word, one word. Um, and then we can train parents how to um, basically um, stimulate and encourage increased speech language from 18 months. So if we had to get a three-year-old that was still saying da da mama there, it's a lot harder because what are the speech language expectations of a three-year-old? They're starting to under they're starting to string four, five, six words together in a sentence. They're starting to understand the actual grammatical morphemes within a um, sentence construction. So their speech and language at that level, the norms are a lot more demanding than of an 18-month-old. And then if you're looking at a school-age um, child that's maybe four and a half, five, you're not quite understanding them very well. There's, they have speech sound errors, so they're saying tat for cat. These are phonological processes. They're saying um, 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 yite for light. They're saying um they saying sue for shoe so it depends because when um when children start to develop speech sounds they use a simplified uh, version of adult speech so they've got lots of normal errors okay but at three and a half four to five 
most of these phonological errors need to be gone, okay? They need to start having speech that's actually clear um, and not doing what we call sound substitutions or replacing um, front sounds with back sounds or back sounds with front sounds. So generally, if a child is three and a half, four, four and a half, and they're not very intelligible, then I would also say, uh, yeah, okay. I think we need to start addressing the speech, the actual articulation, the, the phonological processing errors that this child presents with. Um, and then you've also got your persisting, your, your generally all, most children struggle with this, your um, um, bath for bath, there for there, up until five and a half, six, they're generally still doing this. Um, and if they're consistently still doing this, I would say remediate. And your general, your listening, your snake for snake. Um, it's very difficult getting a 10-year-old that still does this, for example. And I currently actually do have a 10-year-old that still lists on my caseload. So again, it's not cute if your six-year-old or five-year-old is lisping because um, they will grow with this. If that lisp is consistent with all their fricative sounds, like your s and your z sounds, it will probably be how they say it as a, as a young teenager and an adult, which is not cool. Um, and I tell a lot of parents, try and foresee your child speaking like that as an adult and imagine how you would take that person professionally. Um, so it, like you, you gotta start thinking like that. Although your kid is young, if they're persisting with unclear speech and they're neurologically fine and they're at a normal um, a mainstream school, um, where was I going with that? They're probably, they're probably going to, um, they're probably going to struggle with literacy um, and confidence and things like that. Because in general, you know, kids are mean, they do pick up if a person speaks differently um, and they do, yeah. they do tell you, they'll tell you, you speak funny. Yes, um, yeah. And then why I say literacy, it affects literacy, is because usually how we say sounds, it's how we hear it, and it's how we're going to spell it. So if I'm saying bath, I'm going to spell the th at the end with a f. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear the difference between a th, 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 th and a f. But um, yeah, so sometimes if they consistently, persistently still have um, a, a sound substitution in their speech, they probably probably going to spell it that way later on in grade one and grade and grade R. Um, okay. So technically by, by grade R, we want to have all the um, errors in somebody's speech remediated. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So, okay. You've spoken about some of the issues that a child could face when, when struggling with speech, such as, you know, a slight hearing problem, maybe a, de a de developmental, sorry, <laughs> problem. Yes. Could a problem be an older sibling? Like, would a child, have you ever had a case where a child is dependent on their older sibling speaking for them? Yes, we are. We've got twins that are also dependent on the other twin for speaking for them. Um, generally, if an older sibling um, didn't have any issues and the younger sibling now comes up um, and is not, was not, did not quite develop as the older sibling did, we usually have parents um, coming in sooner than later because they've got a reference. They've got a point of reference, which okay. is the older sibling. They remember that the older sibling's um, development was quicker than the younger one. So generally, they come for help quicker. 
But if it's the oldest sibling that's presenting with the problems, we generally see that that first child um, a little bit later than what we would when we would have liked to see them. But that's not always the case. I'm just generalizing. We have had I have, I've had parents that have come to me with a one-year-old and saying um, he's saying but um, should he not be saying data <laughs> as well? And I'm kind of like. That is great that he's saying those sounds, but let's just, just give it a second. It'll come. It'll come. But thank you. We'll, we'll watch it. So, um, uh, but yes, there are some of those cases where a sibling depends on the other one to talk with them. Wow. Okay. Um, so when, when a child starts seeing a speech therapist, how long would a child generally see the speech therapist for? Like, is it a lifetime commitment? Is it a few years? Is it dependent on the problem that the child is facing? Yes, hundred percent. It's dependent on the problem. So um, I'll give you a few a few scenarios. I had a child that came in with a list. I said to mom, "How quickly do you want? Um, do, do you? I always get an expectation from the parents. When do you think therapy should be done? They give me a time frame, um, and then and then I I give them a realistic expectation based on what we um, what we've assessed and what's come out from. Um, from the norms um, for that child. So, for example, I had a child, a little girl that came to me and I assessed her. She just had a lisp. Uh, there was nothing else that I could pick up um, that was affecting her auditory processing, her ability to follow commands, whatever. So, I said to mommy, let's do twice a week and see how quickly, um, her, see how motivated she is. So, it depends on motivation of the child and how parents are consistently doing the work that you do with um, that you tell them to do at home because carryover is very important. You can't just expect a speech therapist to see a child for 30 minutes twice or once a week and the issues to all the whatever goals you want to achieve to to um, to be achieved in a short amount of time and then that's it. It's a, it's a teamwork. It's a teacher-parent uh, um, triad. Um, so, for example, this, this lisping girl, um, we, we completed therapy in three months and we were done. She's, oh, she wow. was, yeah, she was, I, I even, um, because we, you have to build it up on a hierarchy. You start off with getting appropriate placement. You co-articulate that, um, that sound that she's now got placed properly into, um, into syllables, then into words, then phrases, then sentences, and then you practice carry over in conversational speech and see if she identifies um, and has good, um, ability to self-correct and then once once you can see that in the therapeutic environment and out they self-correcting and identify when the errors are there and then that's pretty much probably the, the, the state where you like rights you're ready for discharge and then you've got the case where um, a child comes in um, maybe with like an apraxia you will probably be seeing that child, say, let's say it's a three-year-old, very unintelligible, lost speech sound errors. They're very inconsistent errors, which tells me it's an apraxia um, because apraxic's planning issue is not consistent errors in their speech. It's all over the place. Um, so they will probably be, be, be with you for three, four, even five years. Um, and then you've got a cerebral palsy. Um, you'll probably see them... Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe up until um, maybe up until their mid teens. Um, it it depends. I, it honestly depends on the parents um, and how equipped they have been 
um, through the speech therapist because a cerebral palsy child you start off with probably from birth you should um, and then you go on assisting them with feeding for a while then speech and language and feeding and you consistently grow their um, their AAC device with the child as they're learning different language concepts so you'll probably see them up until 15 you if the parents have enjoyed you as a therapist sometimes you don't get the the privilege of um, being that child's therapist for that amount of time um, and then you've got an autistic again you'll probably see them because they're not speaking so the parents will probably come to you hopefully about um, a two generally we get a three-year-old and they're not speaking um, but there's, he's not he or she is not quite diagnosed with autism because he's too young so you start addressing um, therapy with that child and you'll probably again this child can also be seen throughout, throughout until high school um, and then you've got a language kitty maybe just struggling with a bit of grammar um, you might see them for six months um, and then you've got um, a fussy eater. You might be see you might see them for a year, uh, or or more. It depends how severe the the fussy feeding is. Um, and then an auditory processing kitty. Um, you might see them for a year or two. Um, technically, if the child is going is is in mainstream schooling already or in remedial school. Uh, okay, let me say mainstream. If the child's in mainstream schooling, um, and the, there's a few areas that they're struggling, the things that they're struggling with, maybe um, initially articulation, phonological processing, you generally don't want to have them, depending on how many areas they have, um, for more than a year and a half or two years. It depends. It really depends on the motivation um, and what specific goals you're, you're, you're needing to address and how many of them. Um, so it, it really depends. It depends on the diagnosis. It depends on the motivation. Okay. It depends on the parent's involvement. And it depends on the um, teacher's willingness to include whatever concepts that you're working on to just sort of um, bring them into cl the class. Um, yeah, so your special needs is generally up until they're teenagers. And then your, your other population, it just depends on all those factors that I've just mentioned. Um, child's motivation, parents' involvement, um, and then yeah, your communication with the teacher. Okay. Wow. Okay, so Ash, one of the things that you've mentioned quite a bit is fussy eating. So how would you like differentiate between a child that just doesn't like broccoli because it tastes gross and a child who's a fussy eater? You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. So um, basically, first of all, we have to... Um, assess the child with different consistencies, different um, uh, textures of food, um, see their okay. response to the food. Okay, so um, we get a food inventory from the parents first off, because then, then we've got an idea of what it is that they're um, defensive against. Okay, so we, if a parent said left broccoli off the list and the child was eating everything else but the broccoli, I would say to them, just put the broccoli on the plate um, for 15 to 17 meals and have it for supper, um, for lunch. Have the child watching you eat it 
make the broccoli in different interesting ways with salt and cheese and whatever. But I, I would honestly just give them a recommendation of ideas to do. And I would say to them, please don't come for therapy because your child is not a fussy eater. They just have pre a preference for not liking broccoli. Okay. Um, but then I'll have a parent that'll come to me and say, really, we are struggling. So I have got a case where um, a child only ate crunchy, very um, flavorsome food. So like, um, like crunchy cheese with boggle on. So salty, crunchy, maybe a little bit spicy. But if you put the cheese, stringy cheese or butter um, next to that child or mayonnaise, this child would literally um, start perspirating with anxiety, like oh, very, goodness. very afraid of, yeah, of these textures or maybe meat um, because it's also so like, like avoidance towards um, wet looking foods and then preference for very dry, crunchy um, flavorsome salty foods like that then 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 you've got a fuss eater then you've got yourself a child that you do need to work with that you do need to do a bit of food play with that you do need to introduce um a few a bit of sensory play and identify um, um like also like a hierarchy to try and eventually get this child to to trust this um these i want to call them wet type of food so but it's a process and it's also a process from people um on the parent side and a lot of the time you may need to get a play therapist involved because when you get by the time you get a child um that's a fussy eater it's because parents have tried everything up until that point so you 100 percent know that um there's been a lot of um negative um, uh, negative feelings around eating. So, for example, um, parents would sit there, probably not even eating themselves, and watch the child eat and say, eat, or maybe even force the child to eat. So, you, you might not get all of that information. So, you might have to get um, psychologists involved just for the parents to speak to, um, to get all that guilt out. Because it's, we're not, you're not, you don't come to therapy to, to, to make you feel like a bad parent. You come to therapy for help, and we're not there to judge you. We're there to work with the parent and to work with the child and to get you guys um, living in an environment um, in a, that, that's pleasant, to enjoy your kids, to enjoy mealtimes, to, um, to make it fun. And we'll also give, um, especially parents that have fussy eaters, we'll, we, it's a lot of parent training. We have to give them special language to talk about food around the kid and um, um, words to avoid when you're eating, um, how important it is to eat as a family and not isolate the child's eating time from your eating time. And I've had a lot of parents that are working really late hours. Um, and I, I, I just say to them, it, it's just something you're gonna have to change if we're gonna get this better. This, your child cannot eat on their own. So whoever's with the child, whoever's the child's caretaker, needs to sit there and eat with the child then you know yeah um it needs to be a very social comfortable environment it's not supposed to be a forceful anxious because your child will associate anxiety to that food type because that food type is the one you want him to eat and whenever we want to eat it it's an anxious environment oh wow um, okay. yeah and sometimes we we have a um we have an overlap with um, occupational therapists and speech therapists in this regard. 
with the fussy feed, feeding population because the fussy feeding could be because they're not able to tolerate the, cons the, um, the consistency due to um, poor oral motor control or it could be sensory, sensory um, aversion or defensiveness for that texture or consistency. So these are little overlaps. So you always need to involve an occupational therapist and a speech therapist when assessing a child with fussy feeding. Okay, all right. So um, now we've spoken about the speech therapy, the hearing, uh, not the hearing therapy, that's what I want to get onto, <laughs> the eating <laughs> therapy. <laughs> and so I know that one of the treatments that you offer in your practice is um, a hearing test to see if a child's hearing is impaired or in any way damaged. So could you tell me a little bit more about a hearing disorder and how you treat them? Okay, so um, so we, we as speech therapists don't go into the diagnostics of hearing disorders that we would always refer to an audiologist for. Okay. Although we do have, in my practice, we do have an audiologist um, who has, we have a speech therapist who has a dual qualification as an audiologist as well, but that's not our speciality. So we do do school-based screenings. So we, we screen children from three, three years upward um, because we do hearing screening um, to identify what actual frequencies the child is hearing in the right and the left ear and see if there's a discrepancy in one or the other. Um, and if they fail, we'll refer to an audiologist. And then we also do a screening of um, uh, the TIMS. So basically to test the mobility of a tympanic membrane to assess whether um, that's within the ear, to assess whether there's any fluid in the ear, if there's fluid in the ear, um, if there's anything going on as an ear infection or whatever, there's not going to be appropriate um, mobility of that um, tympanic membrane. Therefore, we need to probably refer to an ENT um, to have um, um, antibiotics prescribed or um, draining to be done. And then we also test the inner ear hear cells to see that the child's actually um, sound, they're actually hearing sound which is an OAE, an auto-acoustic examination. So we also do this. This test we can actually do from newborn. So we can test a newborn to see if they're, the, they're actual hearing, um, they're, they're actually hearing sounds. Um, and then we do um, an otoscopy. So we basically just look in the ear and check that the cone of, beautiful cone of light is there. Um, and there's nothing looking abnormal in the ear. So once we've done that, and if there's any, um, anything abnormal, then we refer, if it looks medical, then we'll refer on to the ENT. And then if they've actually failed the, uh, the hearing screening, so ability to hear certain, um, different um, frequencies, sound frequencies, then, then we'll go on to the audiologist. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so we've been speaking a lot about um about peds and little kids and how you treat them but I do have just a general question for the elderly <laughs> yeah. so yeah. is there like an age limit to when a person could get speech therapy so for example if an older person who's let's say like 70 or something if they went for teeth implants or if they got dentures which changes the shape of their mouth would it benefit them to seek speech therapy would you be able to help them or are they just stuck in their own ways <laughs> 
Um, no. So if they actually had um, a medical procedure done, which has changed the shape of their mouth, um, whatever might have happened, I'm not too sure. But yes, they would they would definitely come to speech therapy. Um, so there's no age limit. Um, I've seen a lady who's 103 years old. With, wow. Um, yeah, she was incredible. She was all there cognitively. She was all there. She was amazing. Um, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I love, I love, I love that case. Um, so she she had dysphagia, which was um, which wasn't from any cause. She didn't have dysphagia from a stroke, from TBI, nothing like that. She had a swallowing deficit, which is remember dysphagia, um, because she couldn't swallow. She couldn't. She didn't have a strong enough swallow, basically, to clear um, uh, the bolus effectively. Um, without aspirating. So she she had a, a, a peg, which is a tube in, in the in the stomach. Um, so she fed herself um, majority through that. Um, but then I did vital stimulation with her. So basically I had electrodes and I placed it on certain places on her neck to help um, work those muscles intrinsically around um, around the hyoid bone to help improve what we call hyolaryngeal excursion, which is what happens when you have a, when you swallow food or liquid, um, because that hyoid bone is lifted up and over the airways to protect them so that the food now has an easy passage downward into your stomach. So that hyolaryngeal excursion for her, because of age, was not closing, lifting up and over as it should. So the vital stimulation that I was doing with her um, was aiding in that. Um, so we just did vital stim um, and some forceful swallows and things like that to to try for, try to exercise those muscles so that she can have she could eat food for pleasure. Um, because at 103, you know that that's what you you're gonna just you enjoy the rest of your days, eat food. Um, have amazing, you know, taste. Food is pleasure. Food is yeah. social. Um, imagine you couldn't eat anymore. Like your your quality of life would be dim. It's you know. So this is this is what we were doing with her. We were just trying to improve her quality of life. Um, and then, yeah, your question was that your question? Have I answered your question? Yes, yes, you definitely have. So you heard it from the lady, folks. Whether you're a newborn or 103, you can get speech therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> okay, Ash. So what are the, ch uh, the challenges that a child would face? So a little kid who's got speech and hearing disorders, can they have long-term effects on the child? So I remember you mentioned that a lisp can carry forward into their teenage years, into their adult years. Um, but could a speech or hearing um, disorder inhibit a child's learning ability? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, see, the thing is, what, what our restrictions, especially in our South African context, is um, well, probably around the world, is financial. Um, so most most of our medical aids don't actually cover um, this population of children. So I've I've had a three-year-old um, that wasn't speaking, and then we referred the child for an audiologist and he had completely glue ears so he wasn't actually hearing um, he had the ears drained and then we started speech therapy with him twice a week 
Um, I would have recommended three times a week personally. Um, but financially, a medical aid wasn't covering. Um, it never would, no matter how much motivation I did. Um, and then eventually, because of financial strains, parents eventually had to stop. Um, so yes, that child is probably going to have learning issues for the rest of his life. Um, unfortunately, and not by, by my doing or by the parents doing, it's financial means, you know, there, there's so yeah. much, there, there's a limit that so much um, that people can do. And I know most people want to do the best for their kids. Um, so, so what inhibits as well on top of financial is the, the, the parents' expectations and their involvement. If we don't have parents on board, you might as well discharge that parent, that child. You might as well put your hands up in the air and say, listen, I appreciate you coming. I would love to help it without you on board. There is, there is, we will be in therapy for years and then we would probably leave um, um, disgruntled, you know, because it's taking so long. Um, and then sometimes it's a, it's a therapist child fit. Sometimes it's just not a good fit. Um, and for a therapist to identify that and tell the parents is difficult. And for the, so, so you might have this, um, this relationship between the child therapist that isn't quite compatible and this child hates therapy. So anything associated on, with what the therapist is trying to do with the child um, is probably not positive and um, that child doesn't make the gains um, that that they should be yeah um, yeah uh, yeah I think I've covered it or you know you do have the occasional case where you, the, the therapist isn't treating what they should that what they should be um, and that's probably just lack of experience so that that could okay. also be a contributing factor as well yeah yeah Okay, so Ash, I know that you're a mom and you've got lovely little kiddos. Um, so do you actually use your techniques as a speech therapist on your kids? Because I remember the first time I met your daughter, she told me how, I think she was four or five, maybe. She was, when you first met her, she was, uh, she had, uh, no, she was three. She hadn't turned four years. Okay, so I met this three-year-old. And I showed her my pencil case and she told me that it was, it looked like a pencil case for children. And I was just like, oh <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> was that the unicorn one? Was it a unicorn yes. on it? Yes. <laughs> so Brilliant. for a three-year-old to make those associations, A, is very, very impressive. And B, I was like, I rethought my whole pencil bag. But... <laughs> So do you use your techniques as a speech therapist on your own kids? Yes. So um, I'll give you an example of my son, my one-year-old. Um, his first word was probably at 11 months um, because I was prompting on him. So basically I was doing um, tactile cues with certain sounds to try um, and encourage the sounds to come. And I would do it within the specific context of what I um, of what I wanted the sounds to associate to. So for example, I would point to Dada and then I would prompt on him, Dada. And then I would say, where's Dada? And then I would throw a blanket on Dada and then I would <laughs> rip the blanket off and say, there Dada. And then I would prompt again, Dada. So I would, I would technically do what I, what I do, um, early communication and strategies uh, of repetition, of um, cause and effect, of waiting and anticipating to get a reaction 
um, and then reading his response cues and then responding appropriately and with lots of um, with lots of enthusiasm. So I've always been very enthusiastic around speech, around um, um, quality time and uh, interaction um, and book reading. Um, my, the earliest I introduced books to my kids was probably three months. Um, uh, um, uh, Feely books, just black and white um, or just very simple picture books um, and turning pages. By the time my son was 10 months old, he was um, turning his own pages, pointing at pictures, um, doing animal signs. Um, I do sign language with them. So my son was signing by the time he was 10 months. Um, yeah, so meaningfully, I think he said dad and mama probably at eight months. Um, and then first word user, probably around 11 months. And now he's 15 months and he's saying two, two words together. So he's saying um, apple there, um, hot there, um, birdie up. So that's how he's talking. And I really do, it's, I do believe it's because um, I introduced um, interactive book reading. I've never, 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 never shown him a TV screen or an iPad or a phone. Um, I've, done, I've, I've done lots of auditory bombardment with him, with speech sounds. I've linked, um, I've, I've, I, always, I always go on his level. So um, when he points, I try and keep into context with what he's pointing at and name, name it. Um, so that he's constantly getting that verbal association with the object or the um, whatever he's um, pointing at. So I try and keep, I follow his lead basically. Okay. I try and keep following his lead so that I identify his interests and then provide um, sounds or words for that object. Okay. Yeah, so he's, he, I know what he's, he, I, we can communicate now very, very functionally. As a, as a one-year-old, I can understand it. <laughs> That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And basically every parent's dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's so possible. I think um, if people just knew how to, to um, I'm not saying for everybody. I, I know that there are children with um, bigger issues, um, like we spoke about our special needs population that sometimes aren't quite diagnosed at a young age. So there are bigger issues. But I think... Um, if most parents could actually know that um, these issues could be addressed a lot earlier than, than, um, than when we actually get the child, um, then we would be having um, a lot of a younger population than, than an older one mm. okay. because they'll be discharged sooner. <laughs> wow. Okay, so in your opinion, would you say that baby talk is detrimental to a child's learning? um what like talking like a baby yeah so if you dumb your talk down to them yes yes i talk to my children like they're adults okay. i talk to them i don't go i also get i don't talk like that and i don't <laughs> i don't um i don't talk like them back to them okay all right because that just aggravates that speech sound error um that they have that's normal but you're not giving them the right pronunciation for that that sound and that word you're just giving them their their simplified version back to them yeah yeah <laughs> they say mm -hmm. that simplified version because they're learning how to speak like you so don't yes. speak like them <laughs> okay all right 
Oh, that's very helpful. Okay, yeah, so and they're yeah, and they're <laughs> cute, but don't don't speak to them in Google Gagas. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so obviously the to wrap things up now, um, let's talk about the topic that's on everybody's lips, and that is COVID nineteen. So yes. have you found that um, COVID-19 has knocked your business and have you been able to practice during COVID-19? Yes. So it, it has knocked us. I mean, when the lockdown happened, we, um, we also went into lockdown, obviously. Um, but I encouraged parents to, to go virtual. I, we opened up our telehealth platforms. Um, and I saw it as a very big opportunity to um, empower parents. Um, and I, I verbalized this to them. I said, guys, this is the prime time for you to actually do with your kids what we do with them. But unfortunately, children act differently with the parents and parents aren't therapists. So um, a lot of them knew this and a lot of them voiced this. Um, and there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of resistance towards going telehealth route, which I understand it never replaces face-to-face. Totally get it. Um, but with our telehealth options, it's still, um, there, there are still ways to, um, to address the goals that we were doing with, um, with your, the child face to face as effect, to address it as effectively, as effectively, or sometimes even more, not with all cases, but with some, it's really working, especially with our literacy, um, our mild articulation, um, children, our stuttering, um, <laughs> Our language, our language learning, it's really helpful with that. Um, but you need parents that are on board. You need parents um, that are willing to try. But And it's fine if, if you're not that parent. It's totally okay if you're not that parent that, um, that can interact in that sort of way with your child um, as you need them to do as a therapist. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's why parents um, seek help because um, they're not sure what how to address whatever it is that they um the needs that their children need basically um and then after the lockdown we put um the after the three week lockdown we started seeing sort of our high priority cases more of our special needs cases face to face um like our autistics and our cerebral palsy because they weren't quite coping with teletherapy which was totally understandable um, with some very, very strict means put in place, um, to, and we got all our, our PPE requirements met. Um, but still, with the whole COVID thing, it's, it's very difficult because we've had to really put distance between ourselves and our clients. We've had to put screens up in place. We've had to wear um, face shields and stuff like that. So a lot of our clients, are, <laughs> I think they're getting used to it now, but a lot of them were a little bit taken aback by this whole ordeal. Um, so we had to get quite creative and make the, the screens a little bit less intimidating by encouraging the child to draw on them or put stickers on and using the screen as a means to actually, uh, of communication. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, and I think with the schools being closed, a lot of our kids are regressing. Hey, I have they, um, I, I fear that quite a few of the kids, especially in grade R or in grade one, won't be going on to the next year. And I really hope schools don't push them to because um, mm, parents are working and they can't quite do what they need to do as the school would at home. Yeah. Um, and if the child hasn't been coming for therapy, then we 
then they're probably just regressing. Yeah. Um, so this COVID has been a, it's been a little bit negative um, and stressful for us and our parents. Um, and then I think our kids are just getting, um, uh, I think, I think they're, they're out of, you know, they're just totally out of the routine. Um, they're missing friends. They're missing the interaction. And now that some of them are going back to school, they have to maintain a distance. Yeah. Um, teachers are wearing masks. So we've got some auditory processing, a lot. We've got a lot of auditory processing kiddies that now have to try and still process as effectively what the teacher's saying, although there is a muffle. Yes. <laughs> They're yeah. speaking muffled. So I'm, I am a little bit concerned about that. And a lot of our kids, especially our younger ones, learn by looking at the mouth. They learn um, at looking yeah. by looking at the mouth, um, not just hearing. They also they also looking also helps. Um, um, so I'm I, I yeah I am a little bit concerned about that. Um, so I do hope that especially the yeah the teachers that are teaching younger children have got means to actually open up their face so the children yeah. can still see their face. Gee whiz, I never even thought about that. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm also worried about the the babies that are be, being sent to um, daycares and stuff. If they're constantly seeing a carer or a class um, a teaching assistant with a mask, babies are the one that they. You go up to a child's a baby's face, and you, you. That's that's how you entertain them with your face, with your facial expressions, with your mouth and your lips yeah. and your tongue. You make clicking noises. You make boom sounds. You so, yeah, a little bit concerned about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, if people do need speech therapy help, where can they find you? So I am based in um, Olivedale, uh, Fairland. Um, Olivedale and surrounds. We go as far as Lanseria. We've got rooms there in Lanseria as well. So basically northern suburbs. And then we also have a practice in Bedford View. Um, yeah, so we Bedford View and northern suburbs, basically. Okay, great. And how would people get in touch with you? So um, I have got a Facebook page called Speechworks. I'm affiliated with Hope Studio, which has also got a Facebook page and a website. So does Speechworks have a website. Um, and uh, Therapy Works. I'm also associated with Therapy Works, um, affiliated with the OT Sensory Matters there. Um, and then I, um, um, my my practice name at Therapy Works is is Speech Works as well. So we've got um, we've got websites. You can get hold of me. Uh, my contact number is on my Facebook page. Um, the website address is also there on the, the speech works and um, um, Facebook page. Um, and then you can also go look at our, um, our Hope Studio and our Therapy Works website. So we've, I've basically got three websites. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. So you heard it from Ash. You can get a hold of her on her Facebook page or you can take a look at one of the websites that she offers. If you'd like to get in touch with me during the week, you can find me on Instagram, which is six underscore minute underscore abs. You can find me on Twitter, which is six minute abs. You can send me a Gmail, which is six minute abs at gmail.com. Or you can check out my blog, which is six minute abs.com. 
But anyways, guys, I hope you've had a great session with Ash and I hope you enjoyed this and have a good week and I'll see you next week. So bye. (laughs) 